Good to see everybody. We are um, starting a new series of messages today. Um, every Sunday at Emmanuel, we have teaching from the Bible. And with Christmas coming, we are doing four Sundays in a row um, on the, the, the subject of Advent, which is uh, what we celebrate this time of year as Christmas gets closer. Um, with Christmas getting closer, we, we, we have a chance to consider the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. The Bible talks about Jesus coming into the world uh, as a baby 2,000 years ago. It also talks about the, the return, the, the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is still to come. And Jesus and his arrival in our lives, uh, in our world, uh, in, in the future, is a truly wonderful prospect. Uh, in fact, Jesus is, is sometimes described as the desire of all nations. Uh, Jesus is the one that the world longs for. Uh, you may not realize it, but Jesus is the one you long for. Christmas can be good. Christmas can be wonderful. Jesus is better. Uh, Christmas is good because it points to Jesus. In fact, anything that is good points to Jesus. Anything is, that is good is good because it points to Jesus. And so as we anticipate Christmas with excitement, um, perhaps with a sense of responsibility and pressure, but certainly also the sense of, of looking forward, uh, we, we, I suppose, enjoy just a shadow, um, a, a, or maybe a taster of what it means to look forward as well to, to the Lord Jesus himself, who is the true fulfillment of our, our longings and desires. And so this season of Advent is a, a time for us to consider what it means to look forward hungrily, longingly, with, with, with real hope and yearning in our hearts for, for the, the one who uniquely is able to satisfy our souls. Um, and Advent gives us that chance. And the Bible gives us a script for Advent because in the Bible we, we have the the writings of people who looked forward to his first coming. Uh, the, the Old Testament, all written before the birth of Jesus, features some very powerful, eloquent, colourful passages of writing which anticipate the coming of this, this Messiah. They look forward with, with yearning and excitement to Jesus coming. And, there are a few passages that have become famous uh, through the ages uh, because of that. One of them is, is the one we're going to be looking at over these next few weeks. We're going to spend some time in it. We're going to go through it slowly. And uh, I'm going to just read out the first couple of verses to you from this passage. It's Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, his book is the one with the most chapters. It's, it's got some of the most famous chapters in the Bible, including this one. Isaiah chapter 9 is a specific prophecy uh, about the coming into the world of Jesus the Messiah. And uh, I'm going to read to you just the first two verses of it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. It says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, uh, 
Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Let's just pray together. Father, we are grateful for your kindness in shedding light into a dark world. Many of us can speak of the effect this has had in our individual lives. Where we walked in darkness, you've brought light. We thank you that you still do this. And I pray that over this Christmas season, and even today as we consider these words, you by your Holy Spirit would shed light in our hearts so that we might see clearly the one who is the light of the world and have our lives changed by what we see. We ask this in your mercy, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I, I've celebrated Christmas uh, I, at least three times in a hot climate. Uh, once in India, uh, a couple of times in Africa, and it's a peculiar experience for someone who grew up in Sussex uh, because I, I associate, like I guess most of you, Christmas with winter. And I think that's, that's surely how we're supposed to associate it. it. It belongs to the winter. It's the winter festival. Um, and uh, anyone who thinks that you can really enjoy Christmas on a beach is soulless. Um, and so I, I would say that to anyone who said, oh no, I'm, I'm really glad to be, you know, sipping cocktails on a beach. It just doesn't, there is a time for doing that. But Christmas is about cold weather. It's about getting wet. It's about feeling exhausted and tired and it's all too dark. And then this bright thing called Christmas breaks in on the winter and uh, we sit around fires and we enjoy twinkly lights and all, the, all these uh, festivities that represent light piercing darkness have their kind of moment and their meaning because Christmas is and always has, even, even in its kind of mixture of roots. You know, we, we celebrate it as our Christian event and yet obviously it was kind of half stolen, if you like, from, from festivals that go further back in this country uh, of winter festivals. And, and that's, a, that's a, an understandable desire to celebrate light in the midst of darkness. And of course, that's, that's definitely the sentiment of even this passage of the Bible, starting off with, there will be no gloom. There's a Christmas statement for you. There will be no gloom. We will see to that. Um, and I suppose that for Brits at the moment, Britonians at the moment, people of all uh, backgrounds, cultures, ethnicities, um, experiences, stories, whoever you are, this season of life, this season of history, this, this time is characterized by at least a few uh, gloom factors. There are a few reasons why people might feel unsettled and worried, concerned about the future, about what it might hold. Uh, we, we are far from clear about the future of our relationship with the wider world as a nation. Uh, the Brexit situation is extremely unclear and stormy. I don't know anyone who's happy about it, not really. Um, there are very few who seem to feel confident about the way forward, even those passionate Leave voters uh, are, are mostly troubled by how things are going. And generally speaking, across the nation, 
there's, there's, there's a lot of dissatisfaction and there's, there's even a lot of gloom. What, what might happen next and how might the nation fare? What's the impact going to be on the economy? People are predicting, uh, in some cases, all kinds of dramatic and immediate effects of a no deal, uh, for example, on the economy and on our ordinary way of life. And then you just put that to one side and consider other global issues, uh, concerns about uh, foreign affairs, concerns as usual about circumstances in the Middle East, the geopolitical picture with Russia and China and, and the, the likely changes to our way of life, uh, the world that people have lived through in the last 70, 80 years will probably have been very different than the world that people right now in their young years are going to inherit in, in their adulthood and, and, and in their older age. The world will be very different and perhaps in some ways that are good and perhaps in some ways that aren't. And, and so there's, a, there's definitely a slight tinge of gloom. Uh, generally speaking, as you look around uh, the culture at the moment, and then there's probably all kinds of personal examples, personal versions of that in our individual lives. For, for a Christian at the moment, it can be tempting to be gloomy. It can be tempting to feel uh, a slight sense of marginalization, to feel as though being a Christian sets me apart, puts me at a disadvantage, makes me feel a little bit excluded, makes me feel even under threat. Some of my liberties and freedoms might be, might be in danger over the next few years. Churches, pastors, uh, people like me will, will at least need to occasionally consider what, what might come to pass in the years to come. How will it fare for the people of God, for, for people who love Jesus? What's it going to look like for us? And, and we could have all kinds of reasons to be a little concerned about the future. And, and in, this, in this passage of the Bible, Isaiah is, is speaking with a, a huge level of confidence about light breaking in. He, he is excited, actually. His perspective is, is, is shaped by this, this idea of light dawning. And I guess people with his imagination would be thinking in terms of God's creative power. That's how the Bible says the world began, with a God who said, let there be light. God who declared light and there was light and light shaped everything from that point onwards because God spoke it into existence. God's power to shape everything, to start everything with light is, is, is spoken of in the Bible. It's, it's, that's the Bible story. And so Isaiah's thinking surely about a God who can just create change and burst in with, with, with new excitement and with hope. And that's needed in this part of the story. Isaiah, the writer of these verses I just read to you, is living at a time of bleak gloominess, to be sure. Perhaps more hazardous than what we would be used to even, much more, in fact. So, so he's living at a time when uh, his nation, the nation of Israel and, and, and Judah, uh, where he, he's mostly stationed in the south, is under threat, very real military threat from a, a northern country to the kind of northeast, a, a growing superpower called Assyria. And the Assyrians, their way is to, to occupy other people's lands, to start to take over, uh, to start to even deport people from uh, the cities which they invade and send them away and send them away uh, in, in, in a measure intended to break down cultures, break down ways of life and to dominate. And Isaiah sees this happening to his own people. And Isaiah's a patriot. He cares about his people. 
He's got no qualms about that. And he's a worshipper of God, who, who is the God of this people. And so for him, this is, it hits him on every level, horizontal, vertical. It's huge for Isaiah. The Assyrians are threatening everything, threatening our way of life, threatening our future. And, and he feels the weight of it. And he knows as well that this is something that could have been avoided. This is something that the nation of Israel has brought upon themselves. In fact, that's Isaiah's message. Part of his message, a great part of his preaching through, through his book is that Israel has, has earned, has, is being paid wages, if you like, for its, its unfaithfulness to God. Israel loved by God, cherished by God, chosen by God. God playing the part of a, a doting husband, a loving, caring uh, bridegroom who, who protects and rescues his, his bride and then his bride turns to other lovers. And, and Isaiah tells this story in, in graphic and emotional and kind of pathetic detail so that you feel the sense of betrayal. And he knows that, that Israel was warned again and again at the start as a nation when they began, they were warned by God in the early books of the Bible, if you commit this unfaithfulness, you can't live in this land. You can't stay here. I'll have to send you out. Other nations will take this land away. You, you, if you're unfaithful to me, there will be consequences. And yet they, they didn't heed the warning. They carried on in their unfaithfulness. And Isaiah's heart is broken as he sees the likely doom and sees what's to come. He, he sees that it could have been avoided. And, and that's really the feel of many of the chapters right up till now in chapter nine. Chapter eight is painting a bleak picture, for example. And that's why when he comes in in the first verse, it starts with that word, but, or in some translations, nevertheless. And, and really that, I suppose, is, is one of the key words of the season. It's, it's what Christmas is all about. God's great nevertheless. God's great willingness to to turn everything, to say, and yet, and yet. Because Isaiah explodes into chapter nine as a kind of one man festival of hope. He's just kind of a walking hope machine throughout these verses. And, and, and as such provides for us resources for our lives as we look into the future with all kinds of questions, economy, Brexit, future for me, future for my family, future if I'm a Christian, if I love Jesus, what's my future in this world, in this nation? Big questions. We need to know where we stand. We need to know what ground we can, we can place our feet upon. We need to know where to find conviction and confidence and strength. And these verses, I believe, provide just that for us. And we wanna spend some time on this theme today. I want to, first of all, just, well, what I want to do is look at the nature of this hope, really. That's what I want to do. I want to look at what makes for Isaiah's hope. Because hope has to be different than mere optimism. Hope has to be substantial. Or it's false. It's, a, it's, it's deceiving. There's something worse than being in a bad situation. There's something hideously worse, and that is laying confidence in something unreal in a bad situation. Being deceived into thinking that this, there's, it's gonna turn out all right. 
when there's no reason to believe that? Surely that's worse. That's, that's cruel, isn't it? That, that seems hideous to, to find out at last that even your hopes were all, all f- foolishness, were all deceptions. It's hideous. And, and sadly, hope can have a bad name and has had in some circles through the ages. People have despised it. People have spoken. Great thinkers have thought, well, hope is an unhelpful thing. It's not a virtue. It's, a, it's, it's to be resisted because it's a liar. But I suppose that's when hope is being confused with mere optimism. Optimism isn't necessarily good or bad. It, it's, it's just not the same thing as hope. I remember when I was uh, training in my first postgraduate job, but after I, I, I was busy, busy, hard work, pressure when, you, when you're just a trainee and feeling the weight of responsibility and the workload and stuff that I'd not encountered in the same way up till that point in my life. And at times felt exhausted, at times felt pressured, as I guess a young, a young guy might do. And someone on the staff just encouragingly to be kind and generous just sat and talked from, with me for a little while and then at the end said with extraordinary confidence with like kind of yoda like levels of sort of contemplative wisdom said to me everything is gonna turn out all right in the end and she left and at the time she said it, I kind of felt like these waves of confidence just kind of formed me. I thought, yeah, yeah, that's good. It was only as she sort of left that I began to realize that was based on nothing. I have no reason to believe that from her. She wasn't, she was no reason. She was simply being optimistic. She was simply saying something that she thought might help me feel better, but there wasn't a basis for it. Is that, is that the, the nature of Isaiah's hope? in this passage. I want to suggest to you it's not. And I want to start by saying Isaiah's hope is a courageous hope. It's courageous. He knows the circumstances so well. Hope, hope in reality is a courageous thing. Hope doesn't ignore the darkest circumstance. True hope doesn't do that. It sees the bleakness. It's, it looks it in the eye, sees the reality. Hope isn't just mere positivity. Sometimes people who are, who are frankly trying to avoid their own realities can try and push you into a place of positivity, which doesn't always work, doesn't always help you. You can almost begin to feel guilty for looking at reality around such people. Sometimes Christians are like this. And we feel as though we're doing something wrong by facing reality, facing the bleak picture. And people who are full of hope, or or, sorry, full of optimism, uh, can try and hoist us out of that in a way that doesn't, in the end, help us. We we need to face the realities. And Isaiah is more well-placed to see reality than any. He's seen it all. He's a prophet. He knows what's coming. He's seen the darkest side of Israel's future in full detail. He's the prophet. There are whole chapters. There are chapters upon chapters upon chapters full of the darkest descriptions of what is coming in this book. He sees it all. And yet he is so full of confidence. I find him extraordinary. I find it extraordinary, for example, we learn in the early part of chapter seven of Isaiah, the name of one of his sons. 
uh, I think the Hebrew pronunciation would probably be wrong, but Shah Yashob, which basically means, the, the, word, the, the name means a remnant shall return. <laughs> you know, just if you're thinking of naming your kids, that's not a good name, uh, generally speaking. A remnant shall return is the name he gives to his son. It's a bit, I guess, like, you know, there are people who might say, name their kids, you know, Brighton will stay in the prem. If you feel tempted to name your child that, um, well, you're very, in some ways, similar to Isaiah, I suppose. He, he puts it in flesh, literally, puts the word in flesh. He names his child after this confidence. When there are deportations, when there's exile, when people are sent away by the Assyrians, a remnant shall return. This land will once again be God's people's land. It will, God will have his people. He will. He will carry on the program. What he promised to Abraham and our forefathers, he will fulfill it. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A remnant shall return in view of that. He's so sure of it that he names his child it. There's courage. There's hope being expressed in action. He's not succumbing to dread. How, how do you handle dread? I wonder what things you do dread. What, what sort of things are you most fearful about at the moment? Maybe in your job, maybe in the future of your job, maybe your level of success or failure. Will I basically fail? Will I not make it? Will I get fired? Will I get demoted? Will, I, will, I, will this project basically not succeed? Will this be a scar on my life? Will, how will it go with my children? What's really going to happen with them? What are you dreading? I wonder. I wonder what things cause you to be anxious, cause you to lose courage. I'm asking you because it's, it's worth seeing them for a moment and seeing them like Isaiah would have seen them. I mean, Isaiah is even mentioning Zebulun here. He mentions in this verse, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali there in verse one. Why, why am I referring to that? He refers to Galilee as well. What is the point? Because at the time Isaiah is writing, these parts of the country are probably starting to be overrun. It's probably already happening. Starting to happen. The stuff he's dreaded for years is already starting to happen. He's seeing it happen. There are, there are Christians in this country who would be looking at some of the legislation, some of the things that, that, that are happening in this country, thinking it's starting to happen. You can fear it. You can be, be controlled by fear, controlled by dread. Things can feel like the thin end of a wedge. It's going to get worse and worse. This is, this is turning dark. He's seen it happen. I guess perhaps a little bit like if, if when the Channel Islands during the war were occupied by the Nazis, people might have thought, well, there's the first, there's the first piece of land. There's the first thing that's gone. What's going to be next? In the case of Isaiah, he knows too much to say, well, uh, it's, that's only going to be Guernsey and Jersey. It, it doesn't matter. It's just the Channel Islands. No, he knows it's the first of many. He knows where it's going. He knows the trend. And yet he's courageous. He really is. He's full of confidence. I wonder where he gets it from. There's one uh, writer on this, this book called Alec Matia who, who puts it this way. He says, we have to decide what reading of our experiences we are going to live by. The darkness and distress are real, but they are neither the only reality nor the fundamental reality. In any given situation, we can either sink into despair 
or rise to faith and hope. Isaiah insists that hope is part of the constitution of the here and now. There's something about Isaiah that, that, that's more he's more impressed by something else than he is by the gloom. What, what for others would be a cave, for him is a tunnel. He's seen something, he's seen light. He's like the psalmists in the Bible who, who see the gloom sometimes and record it with passion and anxiousness and tears. And yet their psalms so often finish with a note of defiant hope where they say, I will remember your great works. I will call to mind your mighty works and your acts of, of power. I will remember you. You are faithful. They are reminded afresh of what God has done and they stay in that place. Now, the question is how? How, what, what was the basis of his hope for the future? He could look back on what God has done in the past as God set his people free from slavery. They had a story, Isaiah had a story he could go back to, but actually he's not going back. He is looking forward. He has seen something and he starts to unpack it. And that's, that's what he's going on about when he says, he's talking about the light that will be seen in Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This is, this is actually fulfilled these very verses these two verses i read to you just now are in your bible somewhere else they get quoted again in reference to jesus himself jesus in the new testament in matthew's gospel this is what is said and leaving nazareth he went and lived in capernaum by the sea in the territory of zebulun and naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet isaiah might be fulfilled and he quotes these very verses and then says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Somehow Isaiah saw a time when not only would God's people start to be recovered back to this part of the world, to Galilee and, and Zebulun, but there was gonna be a man promised by God. There was going to be an extraordinary man. There was going in fact to be a God man, the God man walking, walking, <laughs> these very places, preaching words of hope and life, doing mighty wonders, demonstrating the presence of God, bringing rescue and salvation to the world, announcing the kingdom of God. He saw it, he saw Jesus, he saw him hundreds of years before, he saw that there was an inevitability. In spite of Israel's unfaithfulness and adultery and pulling away from God, God was gonna show up in extraordinary mercy and show up himself. Not just send people, not just send prophets, but show up in the flesh with mercy, with grace, with healing, with kindness, with forgiveness for his wayward people. Isaiah saw it and rejoiced. In fact, it's striking to me. Look, I've been looking at this this week not noticed it so much before, but it's weird, this passage. If you read it right through to verse seven, as we will be doing over this course of weeks, you, you notice the tenses keep changing. He, he talks sometimes about something that's gonna happen. And then he talks about as though it's happening now. And then he talks about it has happened already. He says, those people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, who dwelt in the land of deep darkness. On them has light shined. It doesn't say the light will shine. As far as Isaiah is concerned, it's happened. As far as he's concerned, this is already, it's already come. He's, he's living so in the good of, of what's already become reality. It's, it's 
striking to me that Jesus talks this way about people like Isaiah. He, he says, he talks as though they, he says, these people who wrote hundreds of years ago, in John's gospel, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. That's this weird verse. How, how can Abraham, who lived thousands of years before, know anything about Jesus, let alone rejoice about him? What Jesus was going to come to do, how does that affect Abraham? Well, apparently in, in every important way. Because Abraham, like Isaiah, is seeing everything from the, in the light of eternity. He's seeing the answer to our deepest problems, to our greatest needs, has to be God breaking in himself, dealing with the darkest of the dark, the deadliest of the dead, dealing with the worst of our enemies and dealing with them triumphantly. That's what we need. Abraham saw it, Isaiah saw it, and they rejoiced. They saw it with joy. So Isaiah is excited when he writes this. He's confident in the future. He's confident that God is working things together that seem so, so against him, but he can see beyond it. There's, there's, there's a God who is going to fulfill his purpose for his people. He will see to it. Jesus will be exalted. Mercy will come to the nations. Mercy will come to, to God's people. People will be forgiven their sin. Healing will come. God is going to break in, in greater and greater power. This is his hope. It's enough for him. It's enough for him. And he's thinking, even if I go down, and frankly, we don't know much about what happened to Isaiah. Not in detail, it's hard to be sure, but it's most likely that he did get killed, martyred, that he suffered with his nation, that he went down with them. But somehow his concerns were so taken up with the glory of the one to come that his life was not marked by dread and gloom, but with hope. Reminds me of, in this country, times when the, the light of the gospel has nearly been snuffed out. In the 16th century, there's the famous, you can go there today, the place in, in Oxford where Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were both burned at the stake for believing and preaching the, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Under the reign of Mary Tudor, they were, they were burned together publicly in front of a crowd. Hideous, hideous death. But the famous thing about the story is that Latimer, Hugh Latimer, turns round to, to Ridley and says to him, play the man, Master Ridley, for we shall this day light such a candle in England as by God's grace I trust shall never be put out. That's Isaiah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Advent. He's seeing, he's seeing the thing through the eyes of hope. He sees the big picture. He knows that his light will go out temporarily. But what he's doing, paradoxically, somehow, by his death, by his suffering, by going down, is, is actually ensuring that a light will burn brighter in this nation. And that's the confidence that we must robustly have. We need to have courageous hope. That's what Christians must be marked by at all times. Courageous hope. I look forward with joy and with confidence. Whatever happens, I don't need to worry about the future because Jesus, the future involves the glorifying of Jesus as Lord. That's it. That's the best thing for everybody. And it's certainly the best thing for me and you. So we can be courageous with our hope. Two other things before we finish. He's ambitious with his hope. He's ambitious with his hope. And, and you see this in, in, in the fact that he refers to Galilee of the nations. It's a peculiar title. The nations. Why would he refer to this part of the country 
which is going to be taken over by the Assyrians. And then Jesus is going to start his ministry there, healing the sick, preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins. Why is he referring to it as Galilee of the Nations? Well, partly because it was renowned as a bit of a mixed up place. It was on the edge of Israel and it had never really dealt with its identity, if you like. There was a mixture of Canaanites and people from God's tribes, the, the, the tribes of Israel. And so it was, it was kind of a bit of a mixture of a place. And then with the Assyrians coming, it was probably going to carry on being even more like that. And so when Isaiah starts speaking about it as Galilee of the nations, you could hear him saying, this is a negative thing. And probably for many people, it was seen as a negative thing. The, the nations are coming. That's bad. The Assyrians, the foreigners, they're coming in to ruin everything. That's bad. Every, it's all wrong. It's all going to go wrong because of this bad development. Isaiah doesn't see it like that because when you read the whole book of Isaiah, when he uses the word nations or Gentiles, he uses it in a different way. Generally, he's talking about the future anticipation when all peoples around the world will get to know the God and Father of Jesus Christ. That's what he's excited about. He's excited about reaching out to the world. He's excited about people coming to know Jesus. That's, that's his passion. And when he talks about nations, it means all nations will come. He talks about from the beginning of his book, all nations will stream forth to Zion. All nations will come to know the God of the Bible. That's Isaiah's hope and dream. So when he says Galilee of the nations, is a kind of hint there that in the context of this darkness, he sees something fascinating that God's doing. He's thinking, maybe actually <laughs> the Assyrians coming in is part of God's plan to win the Assyrians, to win the nations that need to be saved. What do I learn from this? I learned to be ambitious. I learned to think differently about the stuff that can be happening right now that's just wrecking our peace, wrecking our hope, making us worry. We do not know what God might be doing through things. We do not know how God might be using stuff that right now looks horrendous for his perfect plan. We never know really, but God has promised to work things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What's God doing through Brexit? I don't know, it looks like an absolute mess. Everyone thinks so, it's all a mess. It's completely out of control. It's all gone completely wrong from the beginning, surely. Well, either I believe this book or I don't. Either I come to the God and say, I know that I can't see how this, this mess works, but I know you are masterful. <laughs> I wonder what you're doing. I wonder what he's doing with our economy. I wonder what will happen. Who knows? Economies can go down. Nations can start crying out to God as a result. People can turn spiritually hungry because of bad economies. God can, God can work through all kinds of stuff. What's going to happen through an ascendant China? Well, there are 100 million Christians in China. Who knows what God's going to do? I wonder what's going to happen globally through, through the churches in the Southern Hemisphere and the East that are growing and pumping as the West looks like it might decline. Who knows what God's planning through all this? We don't know. The God, the God who looks at Galilee and calls it Galilee of the nations, when everyone else says it's a mess full of foreigners and immigrants, God says, that's my plan right there. I love mixing it up. I want to, I want to do what I will do. I will, I will reach nations somehow. I will do it. God's masterful. He, he knows his plan. And it means we can look with confidence at stuff that looks ridiculous, that looks impossible. When, when, when the Greeks and Romans covered whole 
swathes of the world with their languages, Greek and Latin. People would have thought, oh, this is terrible. Our, our culture is being taken away by these outside powers. And, and I'm sure that was how it felt, and I can understand that frustration and that pain. What was God doing is preparing the world because the New Testament was going to be written in Greek so it could go all over the known world. And, and the Roman soldiers built their, their roads so that, that easily they could connect armies and nations together for the sake of their military conquest. That's what they were building them for, surely. No, they weren't. They were building their roads so that people like the Apostle Paul could travel around the world preaching the gospel. The world is always planning its stuff and thinks it knows what it's doing. God is superintending every circumstance for his purpose. He's working things together for good. We needn't fear like the world fears. We don't need to live there. We're not to be covered in gloom. We're to see what could God be doing, even in the circumstances that look so grim. Just another uh, thing that comes to mind. I love these words from the, the, the hymn writer and poet William Cooper. It's one of the, the verses from one of his most famous hymns. He says this, You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessing on your head. The things you dread the most, <laughs> who knows what God might be planning through the very things you most dread. That's Isaiah's perspective and it needs to be ours. He's ambitious with his hope and so do we need to be. Finally, he's humble with his hope. Hope is humbling. True hope, it humbles us. The fact that it's going to start, it seems, when God breaks in, when God comes in the flesh, and rescues and saves and starts his program of kingdom power and mercy and, and, and changes the world. It's going to start in Judah, in Jerusalem, in the capital where Isaiah is, where the king is, where the priests are, where the temple is, in the place that God ought to show up in, where the sound people are, where the true Israelites are. No, he's going to show up in Galilee. He's going to show up in the slightly messed up place. He's going to show up in the place that Isaiah himself probably wouldn't have chosen. But if you're like Isaiah, you'll be grateful for God showing up, whatever. See, true hope is humble. True hope is when we say, God, what we deserve doesn't come into it. The Bible says, it says bad things about what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. But the person that's come to know Jesus understands that they have received mercy on an awesome scale. They understand that they've been truly forgiven. They understand that they can be at peace, true peace, a peace that we'll talk about in the weeks to come, that goes beyond understanding. A person who's, who's felt and known the weight of their own sin, their own shortcomings and failure, their own unworthiness before God. Someone who's really seen that, really stared it in the face, will be too overwhelmed by the kindness of God to show mercy at all. That God should show any mercy at all, they will be too overwhelmed by that to, to quibble with him about the way in which he does it. See, what I do often is I, I pray and pray and pray for a certain outcome. And God might begin to answer my prayer in a way that I didn't quite like. 
but it's the answer to my prayer. I pray and I seek God and God opens up the doors of heaven. He's, he pours out blessing, but it's not the kind of blessing I quite anticipate. Or even, it might be, it might be exactly what I was praying for, but then I realize when it comes, yeah, it's not quite what I, I wanted. I, I kind of want you to make, make me feel better like this. And I, I realize after a while, and we realize that what we're praying for can be rather on our terms. I mean, the history of the church is full of cases where people have cried out for God to move and do great new things in their nation or in their city or in their church. Pray, 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 God, show up, please show up. And then God starts to show up and the first thing they do is close it down. We don't want God showing up around here. We don't like the way you show. We don't like the way you've answered our prayer. We, we, we're not excited about the way it's come. It doesn't make us feel comfortable. And this is a huge warning, surely. Isaiah is celebrating that God's showing up. God's showing up and he's humble enough about the way God will do it. Oh, Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to have soft, tender hearts when it comes to the way you show up. Help us to remember that we're beggars. <laughs> we, we are beggars. This is what Martin Luther's famous last words. We are beggars. This is true. Someone who understood grace. Someone who understood, I get what I get from God all on the basis of sheer kindness. And the fact that he's kind to me is overwhelming. It is amazing to me. And he just was able to see it that way. And we need desperately to have the same mentality. See, this is relevant to us, especially at Christmas, right? Because Christmas is a time for us to subtly be trading and earning through the supposed act of gift giving and the whole process of giving the whole process of providing hospitality and loving people can actually be an exercise weirdly enough in trying to build credit you know it's kind of stressful Christmas maybe already you're starting to feel it a bit like who bought me cards last year who do I owe a card to who do I owe a present? They spent probably about $14.99 on me last year. I better do at least the same this year for them. I think last year, I've got it written down somewhere. I gave this to the, who's expecting this from me? And the, the whole process of giving can actually be marked by penny pinching legalistic stress. And even the whole preparation for Christmas, it can just cause us a lot, a lot of worry and anxiety a lot of hosts and hostesses go through the whole process of having family over and it has to be perfect it has to be just right it has to be because i'm trying to reach a standard in my giving that makes me look good that, that makes me shine that gives me credit in the bank that, that makes me fit in well you know when, when jesus came into the world he turned all of this upside down the whole culture of the time was built on this idea of giving that was, it was kind of like the, the, the Godfather. It was, it, the kind of Roman world was built on this idea of patronage and client relationships and people giving as a way of controlling. I give this to you so I can basically get what I want back from you. You're, you are obligated to me because I've given you something. You ought to feel your obligation. I own you. And people would be giving all the time, giving all the time, but creating a culture of stress and panic and worry and who do I owe what to and how do I fit in with, who, how do I please them now? And if I don't please them, it will look bad and there'll be terrible shame on me because I haven't kept these obligations. The whole culture was one of public 
gifts and public shame. Jesus comes into the world saying, when you give, don't, don't, don't make any fuss. In fact, give, give in such a way that your right hand doesn't even know what your left hand's doing. Give privately, if you can, give secretly. Jesus was quite into encouraging this kind of weird, different culture. Don't even let people know. So there's a writer called Peter Lightheart that says that Jesus was the first of the ingrates. What does he mean? You say, Jesus wasn't going to fall into this false gratitude culture because he's come to show us a father who is the father of all lights. Every good and perfect gift is from above. He levels everything. He turns it all upside down. He says, do not be enslaved to any expectation that the world puts on you. You are set free by the great giver so that you're enabled to give freely out of love out of a different appetite, a different attitude, a different longing, not to, to fit in and make sure everyone's happy, like Martha in the kitchen. You remember the story? I've got to feed everyone. I've got to look good. I've got to do hospitality well to make everybody happy. I've got to look good. And Jesus tells her straight, says, you did the wrong thing. You didn't do what your sister Mary did. She just came and sat with me, spent time with me. And there'll come a time for hospitality. There'll come a time for cooking and planning and wrapping presents and buying stuff. There'll come a time. You've got to do that stuff, maybe. I, I understand that. But, but do it because Jesus calls you to do it. Do it because he loves you and he loves the people that you love and, and he wants you to enjoy. <laughs> be, be set free. Jesus wants you to be free in your giving. Freely give. Freely you've received, freely give. Let the whole thing be characterized by that freedom. Don't come under the bondage of human expectations. There's somebody who took that bondage for you. There's someone who suffered for you. There's someone who was bound and who took the curse and the shame upon himself. We can live in freedom and we can give with the same freedom because of him. Let's pray together. Father, I want to pray that you would help us each one to understand more deeply the power of grace and forgiveness in such a way that we are humbled by it that it keeps us humble, it keeps us rejoicing in all of your gifts. Even if they don't fit in with exactly how we would have liked it, we are so grateful for Jesus that we don't particularly care about some of the details. We are genuinely living in the wonder of who he is. Help us to be that way and help us to, to live that out even in how we do these next few weeks in our families, in our friendships and as a church and in this city. In Jesus' name, amen.